Hello, I'm David Domenici. You're listening to Edupalooza Talks, a special podcast series from Break Free Education. We're proud to share this podcast series as a component of our Break Free Edupalooza, an online professional development conference for educators in juvenile justice facilities around the country. In this podcast, we're joined by Charnette Sims. Charnette's the principal of the Consuela B. York School, which is located inside of the Cook County Adult Jail in Chicago. Charnette is here to share about keeping true to her values and beliefs while working under really difficult circumstances. Charnette, thanks so much for joining us today as a part of our interview series for Edge of Palooza. Before we get started, on a personal note, I just want to say right here up front how much I respect and admire you. I'm really happy to have had the chance to talk to you today in this sort of informal way, and it's been a real pleasure working with you over the years. So thanks again for joining us. And thank you for having me, Dave. You got it. Well, we like to begin these podcasts by getting to know our guests a little bit. So first, how did you wind up having a career in education? And then what led you to working at York inside of one of the largest jails in the country? So first of all, teaching is part of my DNA. My great-grandmother, who I, I never got a chance to meet, she was a teacher. And I found that out later on in life. But as a kid, I developed a passion for problem solving. At first, it was just solving math problems. <laughs> but then I realized that I, I got a lot of enjoyment out of helping other people just think through challenges. And the people I was helping, they were kids as well. And when you're a kid and you don't have much responsibility, you know, your challenges are pretty much homework challenges. So my, my unofficial role was helping kids get their homework complete. And over time, I, I became really good at it. Just being a homework manager, I would say, but also helping my siblings and my, my cousins, my friends, helping them understand the assignment. So it was not just completing the assignment, but also being able to check for understanding and also assist them. And so I just carried that over, you know, elementary school to high school. By the time I started college, I knew that I was going to be a teacher. Well, hey, that's pretty neat. Homework manager. I haven't heard that one before. That's great. Uh, that was my job. That was your job. All right. OK, so then you decided you went to college and decided and you came out and I, I guess taught school for a while. Talk us you know, tell us how you ended up there at the Consuela B. York School and inside the, one of the largest jails in the country. So I got a bachelor's degree. I started teaching. I'm teaching English in the high school. I was hosting student teachers. So in our district, the local university would give the schools a voucher to host a student teacher. And I'm a freshman teacher and the principal gave me a student teacher. And I thought like, how neat is this? And along with giving me the student teacher who worked with me for the entire semester, I got the voucher. And so I decided to take a special education class. Mm. And then the next semester, I got another student teacher. I got another voucher. And so I took another special education class and I ended up meeting, her name was Paracene Moore. She was the assistant principal at the jail at the time, but she was also the professor at the college teaching the special education course. And I had seen her for two, two semesters in a row. And she says, you know, I wasn't in a master's degree program. I was taking the special education classes for enrichment because I realized that, you know, students had uh, more challenges than, than I was prepared to deal with. 
And she says, you know, I really need good people like you to come work with me. And I work at the jail. And I was like, okay, you know, the jail, it's the jail, it's their students. And she said, you, you would be surprised at how many students are coming out of these city classrooms who end up in the jail where they're just essentially pushed out of the general school. And then they're out of school for a little bit and then they get themselves in trouble and then they end up in, in detention. And so at the time I was working in a school where I didn't work summers and she invited me over to work with her during, during the summer. And she was really working on convincing me to come and work with her. And by the end of the summer, I told her, I said, well, you know, I have to give my principal notice because I had not committed to being at the jail. I had not notified my principal that I wouldn't return in the fall. So the first time that I got an opportunity to transfer, which was the spring semester, I notified my principal that I would leave and I went over to the jail to work with um, my college professor. And I've been there ever since. Well, that's just fascinating. About how long ago was that? That was 22 years ago. Well, wow. How about that? So, yeah, January of 20, 2000, I left general public school, community school, and went to work in the jail with my professor. But the one thing that, that really wooed me about being in that environment, she was absolutely right. There were students who were in the general school who I personally knew who had disappeared, and they were actually incarcerated. And I realized at that moment that we didn't even have a system in the regular school to, to really track where students were, or if we knew that they were there, there was like no outreach. There was no bridge between, you know, the general school and then students being in detention. And it definitely was not a bridge back. <laughs> so I found that to be pretty interesting. And then the other thing was just that gap where students were truant or had very poor attendance or had just dropped out altogether and sometimes had never been dropped from the school roster. We were just marking them absent every single day. And then they'd end up in the detention center, which was, you know, it's like, we got to do more for these kids. I got you. Well, that's really amazing. We're going to get there a little bit later, but the fact that you've been there for 22 years and still going strong and stick to your values is really amazing. And I, I want to try to, learn a little bit more about that here in a few minutes because that's uh, it really takes something to keep your spirits up and stick true to your values in the midst of the challenges but um with that i want to transition a little bit because you and i know each other well you've spent 22 years in that jail and i'm in a lot of jails and detention centers but i, I don't know that all of our listeners really understand this so can you just describe a little bit sort of logistically, what does this look like there? I mean, when I was working, doing some work with you, I think there were about 10 or 11,000 people in the Cook County Jail. I think there's now five or 6,000, but that's a just massive. So maybe you can tell us there's, it's a big jail. I don't think all 5,000 of them go to school with you. I know that's not the case. So who ends up in the school? Like where's the, and the school is actually, I think more than one school kind of, can you give us, give us a little feel for what's this like? Absolutely. So I think we're, we're the third largest jail in the country. I think we're between seven and 8,000 residents who are currently housed in the jail. But in terms of the school, we only serve the population of students, individuals who are between 18 and 22 years old, who have not obtained a high school diploma. And so there are instances where, you know, individuals 19 years old, he has a high school diploma, he still wants to go to school, we can't take him. 
Um, so 18 to 22 years old who have not earned a high school diploma. Our average daily enrollment is about 200 students, but on an annual basis, we enroll about 12 to 1,500 students. So within a, one school year, we would have enrolled up to about seven different cohorts of students. We have about a 25% uh, diverse learner population, 96% uh, males, 4% female. We've got five campuses, one for females, four for males. About 78% of our student population is, is African-American and 19% Latinx. We've got 2% white non-Hispanic and 1% other. Okay, so that's really something just to hear the demographic makeup is something of a gut check maybe for some people who aren't familiar with how this looks, but that's how the jail population looks generally there at Cook County, I take it. Yes. That overrepresentation is problematic and systematic there and in most of the facilities that I step into on a daily basis. Let's talk about this question. You have 200 kids at a time, 1,200 young people move through the school over the course of a year. What does that look like for teachers? How do, you, how do you make sense of this? Some people are there for 30, 60, 90 days. I think some people with more serious charges are there for a year, 18 months, two years even, I think. How do you work with your teachers and how do you help them manage this to work with young people that are there for, again, real short term and some others that might be there for a significant period of time? That's a great question, Dave. On average, so our data consistently has been showing over the last four years, pre-pandemic, we had about an 80% stability rate. And what we define as stability, a stable student is a student who enroll at any time within the school year, who's there for about 60 school days. He gets this extra stability if he's there for 60 school days, and he's also there on the last day of school. So we had pre-pandemic Four years prior, about an 80% stability rate. So they're not moving in and out as quickly as you know, one would think they're moving in and out. But we also have with the five campuses, so the, the jail campus is 96 acres. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I talk about a campus, I'm talking about buildings with different addresses and housing. We don't control where they're housed and how they're classified. And so our students don't mix. The only time our students mix is for graduation. And our staff, we're a staff of about 65 people in total, and we're spread out in these five campuses. So we have uh, department teams, which are pretty much common course teams. We also have division teams, which are teams of teachers who work in a particular division or building. And our teachers don't work across buildings. And so where some of your students are extra, extra stable, um, some are a little more transient. And so we have one bell schedule for the entire school. All of our students take four classes per day. And all of our students have multiple pathways and different opportunities to earn credit. And so depending upon the building that you're in, the campus that you're in, it kind of dictates that this is a, for example, medium classification or minimum classification. We don't really have anything considered minimum classification, but the data shows that our female population turns over much more frequently than the male population. But anyway, we plan for students to be there the entire year. 
whether they're there or not. And then we also have our year broken down into five cycles. Cycles are 10 weeks. We grade students out every 10 weeks because, again, if they're short-termers, we do know that on average they're going to be there for at least that cycle. And so we're pretty much treating five cycles make up a school year, but we're treating each cycle independently. So that helps teachers actually manage what's happening within that cycle and be able to manage that student mobility. Gotcha. That's incredibly helpful. A couple of things I want to pull out from that. I think I have this about right just to share with our audience. One, I think there's a misperception that young people come and go from these jails really fast. And that leads some people to say, like, why bother? Why do you need a school in that place? They're only there for a week or two. It just isn't the true you, truth. You just the, you, you're you define stable as their 60 days and 80 percent of your kids are there at least 60 days. 60 days is a long time. You can learn quite a bit in 60 days and not going to school for 60 days can create a real deficit if you go back. So I think that's important. I know that's something we work hard with a lot of schools we work at to help, especially the pretrial detention centers. This every day counts, whether you have somebody for one day, it counts. But particularly even if having them for 60, 90, 120 days, this is a long time. Kids got to learn and they have a chance to learn. And like you talked about before you got there, many of the young people we're not going to school before they get there. And, and this can be a real chance for them to meet a good teacher and get interested and find some success. And people always find it odd when I tell them this is a chance to get kids excited about school. They come to school every day. There's nothing else for them to do. It's the best option available. And two, three months of getting to school every day and getting excited and meeting a teacher who cares can be a difference changer, don't you think? Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that, Dave, because we consider ourselves really like a transition center. And our job, I think the more obvious is to leave the kid better than we found them. But also we have an opportunity to re-engage students who have not done well in school or who haven't been in school. We also have an opportunity for students to, to recover credits that they lost from being in school sporadically or just failing at school. But then the other part is you know, serving as a bridge uh, for students who are leaving our facility to go back into the community, into a community school. Like that's extremely important. And so because of that, we consider ourselves to be kind of like this premier transition uh, school, because we do know that they, that they are going to transition out of our school. We don't know when, but again, we want to leave them better than the way we found them. So we're either re-engaging them, we're giving them an opportunity to recover credits that they lost, or we're making sure they don't miss more time by being in detention and we're helping facilitate, you know, them getting back into a school once they're released from the jail. Great. That's a great way to look at this. I think as an ex- a really high, high quality transition school that helps young people get ready for their next stage and to be successful at their next stage. So terrific. One other quick tidbit that I want to move on again. You mentioned that you have a daily count of about 200 kids, but maybe 1,200 young people pass through in a year. We see these daily counts of how many young people are in youth facilities around the country. I know you're in an adult facility, but the daily count of young people in youth facilities is around 40 to 45,000. And that is way too many, but it also for many people doesn't sound like that many. But nearly 200,000 young people pass through a juvenile detention center in a year. And that's a huge number. And it's a huge number of young people. That means they are mostly being unsuccessful in traditional schools. Mm -hmm. 
finding ways, getting disengaged, and then ending up in the detention center. And your numbers manifest that as well. One way to look at this is there's only 218 to 18 to 22 year olds in that jail. It's not that big of a deal. Another way to say is, yeah, but 1,200 18 to 22 year olds pass through this jail year after year after year. And that's a huge number. And if you could get a lot of them engaged in school and back on track, that is a big difference. On the other hand, if the vast majority of them simply end up in the adult correctional system with no education and no hope for the future, that's incredibly damaging to them and everything we believe about our society. Correct. Okay, well, thanks for that. Let's move on a little bit more. I'm gonna ask a couple other questions now. I'm gonna just kind of move in a slightly different direction. Like we talked about, one of the issues here is, you know, you've been there a long time. Seems like you've really found ways to stay really true to what you believe. We met about eight years ago, I believe, when I did a little bit of work with you for a while. Can you just identify what were some of the challenges that you were facing then and maybe lead that into like, I I think a lot of them still exist today, but you know, they come and go. (laughs) Well, um, I think we, um, I think we met more like 10 years ago, Dave. Oh God. Okay. It probably was 10 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) But um, when we met, I want to say it was uh, 2012, the jail was in the process of changing, changing guard, I should say. There was a very security first and last approach. Everything was about security and that's it. They did not give a lot of thought and consideration to programming and the the system just was not education friendly and it was often just ill-prepared to meet the social emotional needs of of the people in his care. That's what the jail was when I came to the jail 22 years ago. That's what the jail was when you came 10 years ago. So it just wasn't very and I, you know, I, I, I would extend that to say not just education friendly, it wasn't program friendly. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, just a lot of competing interests, but everything was really about security. And then the jail started to change. There was new management, new leadership, a lot of retirements. They started installing infrastructure to go from a paperless system to an electronic system, started to force people out, people started to retire. We actually benefited from that change where they were starting to upgrade their systems to go from paper to electronic systems. We benefited from changing leadership. We benefited from, because I think when when the change in leadership and change in management, the focus also changed. So we went from, from one end of the spectrum to another. Like I, I've always said, you know, schools should be considered essential programming. And 10 years ago, the only thing that was really considered essential was court and medical. Well, today um, they've added programs to essential, um, school being one of those. And so we have some residuals of the old challenges, but we have some new challenges. And the new challenges, I think they're good challenges. I think it's a productive struggle. Because I think for the most part, we've gone from trying to get people to buy into the belief that programming is important to getting people to believe that programming is important. Mm-hmm. And so as you add these new layers, you know, you got to think about like, not just how are we going to structure it? How are we going to schedule it? How are we going to staff it? How are we going to support it? So it's a whole new set of challenges. Yeah. And, I, and I say they're good challenges. At yeah. least they're, you know, 
we're not everything that we could be, but at least we're not what we used to be. And so security is still high on the rung, but now that you've inserted programming as essential movement and essential functioning of the jail, that gives, you know, that lent a way for us to get in and, and really showcase what we're doing, right? And show the benefits of education and being consistent and what could happen. The jail has instituted a lot of uh, programs on their own. They offer uh, college courses. They have a full transition program. They offer mental health counseling. I mean, it's just a, a wide range of programs that they offer today that they did not offer 10 years ago. Everything was security first and last, and that's it. I want to go off script here just a little bit and just pose the question to you because I think it's a little artificial. I, I think oftentimes in these facilities, there's this notion it's either safe and secure or there's education, and education mm -hmm. makes places less secure and creates security risks. M my experience is that uh, both in New Orleans and, and up here in DC is that there's very rarely fights in the middle of the school day at the Maya Angelou School or the Travis Hill School or I'm going to ask you, but I guess it can swell to be York. But oftentimes there's fights on the weekends and the evenings. I think it's artificial to say that you can either have programming in schools or you can have a safe, secure facility. I, I am really convinced that the safest, most peaceful, secure facilities for young people and adults is when there's really high quality schools yeah. and people have to be smart and be well staffed and keep their eyes open. But what are your thoughts on that? Just briefly. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you because. If you think about it, the fights are really occurring when the, the structure is poor. There is no structure or it's poorly managed. But if you keep young folks or adults engaged and, and it's structured out, it, it creates a different challenge, right? You got to staff it, right? You got to be able to staff it. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the challenges of the jail. They often bring programs in, but then they can't staff it or support it. But to your point, if they're in a structured environment and they're engaged, you're giving them some replacement value where they're not just making up their own fun and making their own yeah. rules and, and creating trouble or getting into trouble. Like my kids get in trouble after school. As a matter of fact, I find myself at the end of the day, you know, fist bumping the guys and saying, hey, mind your business on the living unit. I want to yeah. see you in the morning because, you know, it's a long time between the end of the school day and the next morning when school starts and God forbid the weekend, you know, so yep. I, I think it is the direct result of them not having structured activities on the living unit where the fights are occurring versus being in the classroom where they're supervised. It's a structured environment. We aim to engage them academically in something positive and productive. And you're not having fights break out in the middle of the day. This is a massive jail and there's a lot going on and there are staffing challenges and there are legitimate safety concerns and all, all sorts of things. How do you on sort of a personal one-on-one -on -one basis and then also at the institutional level with leadership at the jail convince or do you need to be convincing staff to care about the 200 young people that you desperately want to get into your school campuses each day given some of the other stuff going on at the jail. How do you do this on a personal level? And, and how do you do this at the institutional level there? Well, you know, I always, you know, I talk about moving from, from buy-in to belief, 
right? I talk about that a lot, like moving from buy-in to belief. And, you know, it's just a lot of culture setting and norming that has to take place. I'm a firm believer that if you don't intentionally set the culture, the culture is going to create itself. And with your staffing, that changes a lot. Now, my staff is pretty consistent and pretty stable, but the jail staffing, it changes because they have a bidding process where people could bid into certain jobs or whatever. So I think that during the culture setting, the norming, also just, you know, practicing what we preach, right? We can't say that this is important, but then our actions show that this is not important. I like to, you know, call people in to the conversation instead of calling people out. I love that, right? Because I want people to feel like they're part of of the team. I also want them to feel like they have something to offer to the solution. And I think that for me helps to overcome some of the institutional barriers where they see, you know, I'm leading by example. They see I'm true to the work that I'm doing. And, and also, you know, just really trying to disrupt the status quo, right? It's like, you know, as, as soon as we hear people speaking unkindly or badly about the students, you know, I take that personal, like you're speaking, when you talk about the students, you're talking about the school, you're talking about the leadership, you're talking about the teaching staff. So we're, we're disrupting that. But the main thing, Dave, that I think is just extremely important. I like to use data to build relationships, right? And use the relationship to build trust and then use the trust to build capacity. Because oftentimes what I'm finding is that it's not that people don't want to do it. We're asking them to do things they've never had to do. We're asking them to do things that they don't even know what that looks like, right? And so when I talk about, you know, structuring it, scheduling it, staffing it, and supporting it, as you're talking, you know, having this language, this complex conversation with people, they're thinking like, who's going to fund that? Who's going to figure that out? You know, so I like to think about we're using this data and we're calling people in as as part of the solution and not part of the problem. And we're using that data. We're going to try to build relationships with these people. We're going to try to use that relationship to build the trust because people are more vulnerable. People are more open when they trust you. And then use that trust to really go after like, okay, now what do we need to do to support this work? And how can we do this work together? So that's that's pretty much the, the concept and the framework that I use when I'm, you know, trying to get people on board and trying to really get them to see how important this work is and that we're doing this work together. Not that many people talk about data and using data to bring people like in, in the same sentence. Uh, that's a, <laughs> that's uh, a fascinating scaffold from data to bringing people in to, to building trust, trust and then using the trust capacity. to increase capacity and like increase expectations on the back end. And then you can keep circling. So that, that's fascinating set of steps. And I hope some people pick up on that. You know, the last couple of years have been really something. Anybody that reads the paper and, and is concerned about the work that you and I are engaged in has read about the incredible challenges of COVID and what it's done, particularly in sort of large urban jails where there's just a lot of people coming and going. 
can you just give us a snapshot of what what's it been like working there at York for the last couple of years and just trying your best to find a way to yeah. keep educating kids in the midst of all this? Well, um, so was it March of 2020? <laughs> we were actually taking a pause and we were supposed to go home for two weeks, work from home uh, for two weeks. We you know, get all of these uh, novels and things together for students to read. We wanted them to do uh, book reports. They had book assignments. And that ended up extending to 14 months, from two weeks to 14 months. Very interesting, this whole concept of remote learning. I want to say about eight years ago, we decided that we should become a one-to-one technology environment. We were actually taking advantage of the fact that DOC was laying the infrastructure to go from a paper system to an electronic system. And then we got our bid in and said, hey, what would it look like if we offered online learning and we can get rid of some of this paper material, you know, these books and da 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 And so we were doing great. Um, this was pre-pandemic. We were offering students online classes. They were online credit recovery classes. We were offering dual credit college courses that were online. And we had also started offering classes remotely which meant I could have a student in campus A taking a class with teacher in campus B and that, you know, where I had like a shortage of Spanish teachers. I got my Spanish teacher across the compound teaching Spanish to the other students across the campus. And so this was pre-pandemic. We had figured that out and we were actually doing great with it, but it required technology. It required, you know, the internet. And it required the use of uh, students having access to the computers. When the pandemic hit, where everybody was flipping to remote, we were flipping back. Our students could not access the computers. They didn't have access to the internet while they were on the living unit. And so we were just like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And so we had to scale it back to paper packets, um, students weren't getting support, they didn't have the resource material, teachers were frustrated that for the most part, students were not turning the work in, and, and it was mainly because they, you know, they were just having challenges completing the work, or they didn't have the uh, sufficient resources to do the work on their own. So that was a real challenge, but what came out of it was, you know, we figured out, hey, we got to be flexible. When students got back in person, we're like, okay, we can go back with the online learning, but we can't make that the main thing. We got to make sure we protect the integrity of the program where it's flexible enough, where the kids are in class or out of class, we can still provide them with a quality education. But what came out of it, which I'm very proud of, is this uh, MTSS, the multi-tiered systems of support. And so we started collecting data around, um, you know, the number of packets that students were completing and then the, the quality of work that they were completing. And we started tiering our students just based on where they were week to week, right? And so we had assignment sheets and students were checking it off and teachers were checking. We were tiering students, but then we were also pairing that with support. And, and then we started slowly asking the jail, can we bring students out, small groups of students out for small group instruction, you know, and teachers were willing to come in. You know, the jail had done a really good job at getting the the virus under control and containing it at one point. 
they developed some systems and they were they actually opened up buildings that hadn't been opened in years and were containing trying to contain you know incoming residents and they got it under control but then staffing started to suffer but then my staff was willing you know they were like well let's try it let's bring these kids in in small groups we have masks we have all of this ppp equipment and i think two things developing the system knowing that you know students having access was absolutely nothing without support but also the independence that we saw in some of our students. So some of our students were able to thrive even without all of that coddling and support. And so we were like, okay, so we don't want to go back from that. You know, we have to make sure that we're allowing students to struggle productively, but we also have a plan in place for not just the students to persist, but the teachers to persist, right? And so the teachers, we have to keep finding ways to make it work for students. And I call that the teacher persistence part. And then as we were finding ways to make it work for students, we saw the students start to persist. So I was like, you know, you know, I don't even know if we would have discovered that if we weren't in the middle of a public health crisis. Uh-huh. <laughs> so those, those two things came out of it. They were great. And those were practices that we, decided to continue on, even when we were able to get back. I think we left March of 2020. The students and staff left March of 2020, and they didn't return until April of 2021. Long time. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yet yet again, another example of just trying to find ways to make things work and get get to what's possible as compared to just shutting down and saying, we just we can't, can't do, do this, it. and that's what, again, what I really admire about you, and is really critical to make school work in these facilities, pandemic or no pandemic, is uh, a solutions-focused approach <laughs> to challenges. I want to get a just a little bit more personal here. I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit, again, kind of truly, truly from inside. How do you take care of yourself? How do you let yourself make sure that you don't get too beaten down and just sort of start going through the motions, which? sadly and honestly, we both know happens to a lot of good people who go to work in jails and prisons. But years years later, they might still be good people, but they have low expectations and they're not the same people in the jail that they are when they go home to their family. And how do you how do you struggle with this and try to keep yourself healthy and and and, and not always upbeat, but upbeat? Right. Well, you know what? I have uh, some norms, uh, some personal norms for myself. One, I have breakfast every day from home. I don't want to be in the company of people. That's my time. Every Mm -hmm. morning I have breakfast at home before I go to work. Because, you know, once you get to work, you can't really control your day. That is the highlight of my day. That's the best part of my day, right? I work out. I work out three, four days a week. I do not work out on the weekends, but I do work out three, four days a week. And believe it or not, my best ideas come to me when (laughs) when I'm working out. I know um, that. I do not, I don't do any work on Saturdays. So Saturdays, I don't even check emails. I leave work on Fridays and come short of an emergency. If there's an emergency situation, people will typically ring the phone, but I don't check the emails at all on Saturdays. I get back in on Sundays, but Saturdays are all mine. 
the other thing I like to do, I like to read like different books and different types of books. And I've got all these different books going at one time and the stories start to overlap and things like that. But that's that's real personable for me. But the, the one thing that I, I'm always, I'm a thinker, I'm a problem solver. I, I pride myself on being able to rise to challenges, right? And so when I'm working out and when I have that me time, I'm not necessarily thinking about work, but thinking about, you know, how to create conditions to, to help make things better. And I'm telling you, those best ideas come when I'm running or when I'm, you know, taking that walk, you know, and I think I'm able to keep myself fresh. I believe in the work that, you know, that I do. I believe in the work that other people are doing. And I'm really, you know, trying to get my staff to think through and for myself too, like, is this paperwork or is this people work? Because people work requires passion, right? We can, we can do paperwork without passion. <laughs> people work requires passion. And as I'm, you know, talking with people and talking to myself about that, that always comes shining through for me. Like even for myself, my own personal care, like that's people work that requires passion. I have to take care of myself to be able to take care of other people. But, and just thinking about, is this people work? Because this requires passion and you got to keep refueling yourself, right? And, and recharge your battery to do that people work. And, you know, again, my strategy, I'm having breakfast at home. I'm working out three, four days a week. Saturdays, no work at all. I don't even look at the email. I won't even look at my personal email on Saturdays. And that stuff kind of keeps me recharged. And of course, I've got all of these books where I'm reading bits and pieces. I'm like the mad professor over here. All right. Well, thank you for sharing those tips. Uh, it's obvious to all of us that work with you that you do have incredible passion and finding ways to keep that passion sharp is what's really, really matters. And the kids in your care for the last 22 years have been lucky to have you stay sharp and stay passionate. I'm grateful for you for sticking with it and for staying true to yourself and finding ways to keep yourself healthy and strong and keep your passion going. So, and you are correct. This is a, the most people business there is. I believe this is all about people, people we serve, people we work with, people we partner with. So it's really important. That's a, that's a nice way to frame it as well. Well, we're going to have to wrap up here. We are developing some norms for our podcast as a part of our closeouts. So again, first, thank you. Thank you for staying true to yourself, Charnette, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Before we leave, we're asking all of our guests, do you have a podcast or a w website, e-newsletter, or a book or two maybe given you that you've really enjoyed? can be education-related, anything that you'd recommend. Do you have anything you want to recommend to people that we'll put out there? I do. So this is um, relatively new to me, but this is it's awesome. This TED Talk, The Golden Circle. And it is Simon Sinek, and he is also the author of the book, Finding Your Way. The one concept that he drives that may interest people is he says, you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And I would definitely, definitely recommend that leaders pick the book up, look at the TED Talk, look at the Golden Circle, may even be able to read this book with their leadership team. But uh, this whole thing about, you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it, it's powerful. It's simple, but it's powerful and it makes you really think about the why. 
which is, you know, the basis of his book, like the why, find your why. That's, he says that throughout. Find your why and you'll find your way. All right. Well, thank you for sharing. Find, finding your way. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll add that on the- Find your why. Oh, find your why. Sorry. We'll, find your we'll why. add that. All right. Last one. Do you have any last words of advice or any last words of wisdom you want to share with our audience? Yeah, I'd say, you know, when I say all the time, you know, you, you frame the problems, but you make sure that you're putting most of the energy and focusing on solutions, right? Because we can go on and on and on about the problems, but the real work comes when we're trying to figure out how to overcome those challenges or, or how to actually solve those problems. I'll say that, and I'll, I'll also kind of close out I'll reframe what Simon Sinek said and say, you know, find your why so you won't lose your way. If you can ground the work into, you know, why am I doing this? And why is this important for students? And how is this going to make the team better? I say, you know, it'd be impossible for you to lose your way if you find out why you're doing it and tie that why to, to your students and your, and your, your team. Thank you so much for sharing that, Charnette. I look forward to continuing to work with you and thank you once again for being such a great guest on our podcast. All right. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to Edupalooza Talks, a break-free education podcast. Music for this podcast was written and produced by students at the J.C. Montgomery School, located inside Kings County Juvenile Detention Center in Central California, as a part of Unsung, Break Free Education's annual songwriting initiative for students held in confinement. Edgepalooza Talks podcast is produced by her friend and colleague, Christine Anjoko. I'm trying to show the fam I got them, don't know how to live. I'm really trying to do my best, I guess it ain't enough. I don't know who to trust, more heart than broken up. I'm trying to keep a smile up, but I've been feeling now. Better tell me, gotta watch who I be riding with. I didn't listen, now I'm back up in the fight pit. They put me in this cage, and they expecting change. But it only made me worse, and y'all the ones to blame. I gotta take a second, I gotta catch a man. Cause I be sitting 192, and it isn't fair. Would you come and switch positions? No, you wouldn't dare. It's crazy how they got my life, and I'm just in a chair. Life can change at any moment, and I'm well aware. These emotions building up and you just can't compare They got me like an institution and the devil's lair I'm just glad I got my brother with me every tear Feeling my feeling my feeling like